So for the year of 2022, I spent uh, 12 months in a solitary silent retreat. And most of that was spent in the woods, in the mountains, in southern Oregon. So I was there with my partner, but we were there mostly in silence and very much isolated in the wilderness in a rustic cabin. But because of the forest fire danger in that region now, there's a smoke season every summer, we needed to leave the cabin for the three months of forest fire season. So we came here. And I'd done many retreats at the forest refuge before, and I love it here. But there's something about first arriving. Maybe some of you have felt this. It just feels so serious. doesn't it? And everything's so quiet and so slow. And I found myself just in the first few days, just rigid, tensely walking down the hallway, padding down, and just finding all this internal, um, trying to get it right. (laughs) Even though I practiced here a bunch, I just had that happening for me. And I'm friends with Carrie, and so second or third day, I just went into the office, again, feeling kind of self-conscious, like, I'm going into the office. Um, And I just knocked on her door and peeked in to say hello. And I was already kind of in the silent mode and, you know, kind of timid, yogi feeling. And Carrie, with all her uh, effusive energy, she said to me, are you behaving yourself? And I said, oh, yes, I am behaving very well. (laughs) I am doing it perfectly. (laughs) I was very earnest, actually. And she laughed at me. She said, striving, striving. (laughs) And in that moment, of course I had been striving. And to have her pointed out with all of this care and this kind of friendly joking, like, yeah, isn't that what we do? I just felt this flood of metta come. Oh, she understands me. And it's okay that I was doing that tense, perfect yogi thing. And I could relax in this sense of, okay, there's metta here. I can practice metta here. So some words about this word, metta. And you've heard a lot about it, I'm sure. Um, Traditionally translated as loving kindness. But for some of us, I wasn't really averse to loving kindness practice, but I didn't like that word. It felt so loving kindness, sort of awkward and saccharine and syrupy. I think that's what maybe turns off a lot of yogis in the beginning. Um, It feels sort of superficial, like we're just supposed to be nice. And yet, as we keep dropping in, I think another reason why it might be hard to access is that, sure, it feels saccharine and syrupy, and then when we start to touch into the qualities of the heart, it's so tender in there. Isn't it so tender, so soft? And that can feel scary, kind of, the bigness of our vulnerability. So I've been using other words 
I think metta in Pali works pretty well. I think warmth is a good translation. Or simply curiosity, a kind of connection. Friendliness, responsiveness, or dignity. How is that that we're practicing dignity all month? Benevolence, this felt sense of metta when it's embodied, it feels so uh, impersonal, actually, natural, responsive, the natural responsiveness of the heart. So true, but not us, like grace. And this practice that we've been doing, the phrases that might by now feel pretty rote, (laughs) a lot of work, these phrases are simply a tool to get us in touch with that deep, natural responsiveness of the heart. I think we mentioned last night about negativity bias. This often gets in our way. We see all the things that are not going well. We see all the things that are wrong with us, and then all the things that are wrong with the teachers, and all the things that are wrong with the center. And so metta helps us see the good. It helps us see what's good. And even just now as I'm talking, you might think back just over the last day of practice that you've had. Recognizing all the effort that you've put in just in this day. It's hard. It's hard to be on retreat. The moments of mindful walking or even just a few steady breaths. A time when you felt connected to the phrases. It can be helpful to spend some deliberate time reflecting on what's going well, what's good here. The first time I met my partner, he was a Zen monk at the time. He's living at a Zen monastery. And we got tea, and he invited me into his room. Before we entered his, his monk's room, just a tiny sign on his door that said, See the good. And I saw that. I said, Oh, there's something interesting going on here. <laughs> I want to know more about this person. See the good. That's a good metta practice. So another story about seeing the good. I really love Caroline Jones, the resident teacher here. Some of you have been guided by her. She's a dear friend and teacher of mine. And I was looking forward to seeing her this summer. But I, again, had this internalized sense of shame just from something else that had happened in another long retreat I'd been in before COVID here. And I, was, I felt like I had said something that offended her, and I was worried So I was going into my first practice meeting feeling like, oh, I don't know, how is this going to be? Maybe I need to apologize. A little bit of yogi mind, maybe. And Caroline in the library, she just jumped up. And she gave me this big smile, you know, her bright smile. And she was so warm. She was full of kindness. And again, it contrasted with the kind of rigid, icy interior that I'd been holding. I don't know if it's okay. And I sat down, I told her about that. Oh my gosh, I was so anxious to come see you. She said, me too, I'm often pretty anxious here. 
you know, it's all the, it feels very sort of, uh, yeah, big here. This beautiful hall, everything's so perfectly laid out and all of this mindfulness happening. And she says she has to remind herself too, there's really lovely people here. And she reminds herself that and then it's not so scary. That was a good teaching for me. Even friends can seem scary when we're in silence and we're not looking at each other and like, whoa, is it okay? So this inner environment can often be not so friendly. And so the phrase is this practice is just helping us to soften, to warm up the inside, to help us see the good all around us and to rely on others for support to rely on this easy person, our connection with them, to rely on the beauty of this collective practice, everyone sitting and walking and eating together. There's a lot of support in doing this together. So there's this paradox in metta practice I want to talk about because sometimes kindness feels like a lot of work doesn't it? We tell you, just do the phrases all day long. And it takes a lot of elbow grease. You're just sort of grinding through. If you can feel, we're just running up against all of our old patterns. All kinds of emotions are coming out. We've got hindrances, which we'll hear about soon. Doubts, I'm doing it wrong. This is not working. I don't feel it. So it can feel like a lot of work. And at the same time, here we are saying, It's natural. It's the responsiveness of the heart. And really, my teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, talks a lot about this. Kindness as the root of everything we do because it's simply the wish to be happy. That's it. And if you look, isn't that driving most of our day? I just want to be okay. I just want to be free. So if that's the most basic thing about you, about all of us, human beings, maybe all beings, we just want to be happy. So innate, so basic. So we don't have to do anything to get more of that. It's who we are. So why is it so much work? And our beloved teacher, Joseph, he says, on the relative level, love and compassion are states that we cultivate. But on the ultimate level, they are the responsive nature of the mind itself. So it's both. We do have to work. There's, it's hard to recognize that in ourselves and in others. But in the end, it can become quite natural. Like I said, it's impersonal. It's like this blessing that comes. Ajahn Suchito told my friend Bonnie Duran, you got to give some authority to your chitta. Right? Chitta meaning heart-mind. you got to give over the authority to your chitta. Let the heart lead. Trust it. It's its most basic nature, this desire to be happy and well and safe. Or giving authority to the chitta. 
So just a few ways to get in touch with this natural metta that's already here. Seeing the good is one way, phrases, really good way. Just keep them up. They'll start gaining momentum. Rebecca beautifully talked this morning about the metta of nature. Nature is a wonderful way to get in touch with the responsiveness of the heart. And one teacher from Canada, Jeff Warren, he suggests that we move through the world as if everyone already loves us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or another way, again from Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, what if everyone was already a Buddha? You and everyone, and you see the world that way. We see the natural dignity in everyone, that nature that wants to wake up. Another way, if everyone is already my relative, all my relations, and calm us down, feel a sense of belonging, And then many of you have spoken already in individual meetings um, about this self-care. Learning to care for ourselves is cultivating natural metta. That's what we're doing here. So this poem by Jane Hirschfield, who was a Zen uh, monastic for many years. Take the used up heart like a pebble and throw it far out. Soon there's nothing left. Soon the last ripple exhausts itself in the weeds. Returning home, slice carrots, onions, celery. Glaze them in oil before adding the lentils, water, and herbs. Then the roasted chestnuts, a little pepper, the salt. Finish with goat cheese and parsley. Eat. You may do this, I tell you. It is permitted. Begin again the story of your life. So we're permitted. We can be just ourselves. I was here on another long retreat many years ago. It was about this time of year, February, and a lot of snow, similar. Stormy, cold, snowy. I felt very lonely and isolated in that retreat. But I knew that soon, down at the retreat center, they were having a metta retreat. And so I was imagining, I was having some FOMO for sure. I was imagining, oh my gosh, Sharon Salisbury is going to be down there, and they're all practicing metta, and I'm just here kind of walking forlornly on my own in the cold. <laughs> so I had some stuff going on. Um, but I knew metta retreat was happening. And I was really taking a lot of refuge in the woods and go out very regularly, just walking those trails, tramping through in big snow boots. I was so grateful for my big snow boots I could go. And on my route, a few days into the Meta retreat, I started noticing these snow angels in the woods and yogis putting hearts in the snow. <laughs> and I just felt, oh, it's a Meta generator and it's coming up here. <laughs> it was such a solace. To know all that metta was happening down there. I could take refuge in that. Another time, in the summertime, there's this beautiful meadow that we're looking out on here and the wildflowers bloom and 
uh, in the later summer, there's uh, asters and goldenrod, such a beautiful combination. And there's wonderful bees, <laughs> those bees that come. They've been my teachers of metta for a while. I'll just go out and do walking meditation. And there's these really big fat ones that are big and bumblebees, you know, black, furry. And they just, they seem so heavy. <laughs> that their wings will keep them up and they kind of tumble around in the aster and they look kind of awkward and they, you know, collect the pollen. They're so beloved. So it's the little things that can teach us. Nature is teaching us all the time. The pattern of the snow today in the trees. Hmm. So there's this list in the suttas we find, the benefits of metta. And I'm going to read this. This is Sylvia Borstein's book. Um, This is how she says it. I like the way she translates it. She says, people who practice metta sleep peacefully. They wake peacefully. They dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels or devas love them. Devas will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire don't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in the heavenly realms. And so Sylvia goes on to say, just thinking about the list makes me happy. As an advertisement, without a lot of small print disclaimers, it's outrageous. As an exuberant, poetic declaration of the ability of the human heart to rest, untroubled by loving unconditionally, it's gorgeous. People love them, is the operative line. They are protected by their own loving kindness. They are safe. So metta as protection. Sometimes when we hear that list, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, I want that. (laughs) Your face will be radiant and clear and you'll sleep well. Yeah, I want all those benefits. And so sometimes, of course, maybe you've noticed this already, we push, right? Have you seen that little bit of pushiness with the phrases? May you be happy. So it feels like we have to be more kind than we really are. And this kind of striving and forcing is a little bit of an obstacle. So Saida Utejaniya, a wonderful Burmese monk who does a lot on right effort, he says, we exert effort to set up the causes for awakening, but the actual progress is not the result of willpower, but just the natural unfolding of Dhamma. So there's that trust again, trusting that you already have it in you. And the phrases don't have to be forced. You don't have to force a feeling of niceness. There's a real kind of resting back. Letting your intention, the deepest one, be the truest one. And sometimes we have to wade through all of our cultural expectations of how it means to be kind or what it means to be generous and self-effacing. We've got a lot of programming to wade wade through. But can we get to that bottom line, natural responsiveness of the heart? 
It's why we need all the Brahma Vihara's equanimity here. We need that to balance our metta. Again, Tejaniya, he says, when I say do the work, what I really mean is simply stepping back and allowing the mind to do its own work, which is meditate. This is what the mind does. This is its nature. And again, Sylvia Borstein is saying that everything is always breathtakingly the only way it can be. My heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion. So with effort, we need to be with things as they are. Trust the process. Those phrases will start picking up on their own. And what I've learned about kindness, I was really one that forced it quite a bit. I was very much into kind of the saccharine niceness. And deep kindness, true kindness, can often look like giving space. Letting go of any agenda I have for myself or anybody else. Just wishing well, but then letting go of any kind of result. That's the equanimity piece. Not pushing, not forcing things to be different than they are. I think children do this very naturally. So this poem by Wendell Berry, I think it's about equanimity and love. He says, if you love it, do not photograph the woods as it is now. The leaves in sunlight and shadow hardly stirring in the air of the hot afternoon. Do not try to remember it, stopping the flutters of leaves and wings, the dead leaf slowly spinning on an invisible thread. Do not ask the trees to linger even to be named. You must live in the day as it passes, willing to let it go. You must set it free. You must forget this poem. Then, into its own time forever gone, it is forever free. So, I wanted to speak a bit about the benefits of metta. And now I'm going to talk about the benefits of samadhi. So I like this word samadhi. And we've said already some of its translations, a little bit like metta, can be confusing. Concentration has its own connotations, and so does um, focus. Jhana is a whole bag of worms. But the word roots of samadhi, really sam means to gather. It means a kind of coherence, a bringing together. So Ajahn Suchito has a beautiful description of samadhi. He's an English monk in the Thai forest tradition. He says, samadhi develops naturally through enjoying embodied presence settling back into the body and allowing the stress and tensions to unravel 
through simply being aware of what presents itself. And Devin spoke beautifully to that last night, just being simple. Letting the mind naturally cohere. Receiving joy is another way to say enjoyment. And samadhi is the act of refined enjoyment. It's based in skillfulness. It's a careful collecting of oneself into the joy of the present moment. Joyfulness means there's no fear or tension. There's no ought to or shoulds. There isn't anything we have to do about it. It just is. And in now talking about samadhi, thinking about samadhi, reflecting on it, I now always have this song um, that Devin knows well throughout the, co- the pandemic and the quarantine. Um, there was this YouTube video of the uh, Resistance Revival Chorus singing a cappella, this spiritual called This Joy That I Have. Maybe some of you know it. And uh, so I'm going to sing a little bit. <laughs> Not a very good singer, but it goes, um, This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it, the world can't take it away. And I think it's a song about samadhi. Right? It's here already, just like metta. We just have to be patient and quiet and simple enough for it to come. Like those birds landing on Rebecca's hand. It's the same kind of paradox, just like metta. We have to work hard in the beginning, and then it becomes very natural and has its own way with us. When we're developing samadhi, I think it's very important to know our intentions for this. So you might reflect, we have layers of intentions, of course, but even as I'm speaking, What intentions do you notice? Our goals, our intentions are going to influence how we practice. And so there can be some goals, especially in Vipassana practice, that we want to look long enough at an object so that it reveals its nature, its impermanent, impersonal, imperfect nature. So samadhi helps us refine that wisdom. It helps us see more clearly. So it's in the service of wisdom. Another purpose of samadhi is to cut through. It cuts through time. It cuts through object. We develop a very sharp, pristine kind of dissection of reality. Samadhi can do this. Some have seen this uh, statue of Manjushri, who's often in Zen temples. Manjushri always has a sword. So samadhi is like Manjushri's sword. It's cutting through delusion. That can be an intention. We want, my, want to develop a perfect kind of concentration or focus, non-thought. And we've read some about what jhanas might mean, and we're really honing this like very clear, pristine kind of concentration. That could be an intention. 
Or a lot of us might just be, I'm not here to concentrate. I just want to develop the heart qualities. Just cultivating the heart. And none of these intentions are wrong, but they're going to influence how we practice. So I'll offer this. This is from a beautiful British teacher, Rob Burbea. He talks about metta bhavana and metta in the service of concentration as developing sensitivity. We're just learning to attune. And this is what I've been talking about in terms of tuning to what's already natural. That as we get more and more momentum with this practice, the subtlety of attunement and sensitivity grows. Our responsiveness grows. And isn't this a useful skill? We're not practicing in a void. If we come away from practice with more sensitivity and more attunement, can you see how that might help in relationships? In how we are in the world? in this time that so needs these qualities. So metta is a very good skill for samadhi because it's teaching us to attune to the heart. Also from Rob Berbea, he talks about samadhi as a spectrum. And so some might have read some about concentration, the different steps, first, second, third jhana. But what's helpful for me is that it's just all good. It's just a spectrum. And each moment, we're just looking for more gatheredness. That's all we're doing. So it's very simple. Just quietly gardening, gathering. This attunement, this gathering, this sensitivity is like refining our perception. And what are we perceiving? We're perceiving the heart. And as that gets more and more refined, we see joy is in the heart. We see happiness is in the heart. A certain kind of energy starts to come. We see deep equanimity is already in the heart. So some ways to develop this. I'll just give you kind of a quick list. Happiness is the foundation for samadhi. So it can be really nice to find what makes me content. Is it looking outside for a while and watching the trees or going for walks in the woods or finding the most comfortable way to sit? Of course, we're not going to get it perfect, but it can be nice to attune to contentment without rigidity. But find little ways to tune into happiness, enjoying the small things. Tuning to the energy in your body can be helpful. If you have a little sense of pleasant settledness, to tune to that, your mind will incline the more you feel. So as you do the phrases, feel how they're landing in the body and tune to the energy that feels pleasant there. If there's a kind of image that you're working with or a person, a memory that makes you happy, tune to it, refine it. Spend some time with it. And always a key is balance. 
So noticing if the energy is getting really strong. Walking is very good for balancing the energy. Standing meditation is very helpful for balancing the energy. Lying down is really helpful for balancing. So again, that's that attunement. What would be helpful? What would be skillful now? So I'm going to do another list of benefits. And you might just notice what happens in the heart as I talk about the benefits. If there's wanting arising, there can be. Samadhi is very healing. It can have a powerful healing um, capacity, like resourcing. And when we're concentrated or we have samadhi in our body, there can be a deep sense of letting go. Like, who cares what we're having for lunch? Because the samadhi just feels good. (laughs) So a deep letting go. We can learn about our emotions through samadhi. There's a kind of seeing through them. We start to see how they're fabricated. And it doesn't mean they're not important, but samadhi helps us see their nature, which is more dreamlike and illusory. They release easier. There's something very mysterious about samadhi. For me, I'm a devotional type, so it feels like this deep surrender, um, a different kind of love, tapping into the mystery, something that's so much bigger than me. The world can feel kind of enchanted when we're in samadhi. Sometimes it can feel very transformative, deeply transformative. We touch into a new kind of pleasant or a different harmony in the body. And we feel transformed, like, oh, it's going to be different now. And sometimes it is. Deeply healing. Deeply purifying, as Devin was saying. We believe our doubt less. Right? We have a deep sense of confidence. And I think somebody helps us with patience, too. And we can settle back and be with the flow of things without a lot of push. So as we hear about the benefits of samadhi and metta, notice what happens if there's a kind of desire arising. You might have a little bit of desire for it because it's probably what got you here. But sometimes that desire can be very uncomfortable. And I want to talk about this kind of desire because sometimes desire gets a really bad rap in dharma. We think, oh, it's a defilement, it's a hindrance. But this kind of desire that wants freedom, that wants deep metta, that wants samadhi, while it's uncomfortable, it can be very onward leading. And for those of us who want it badly, and I think you have to want it to have showed up here, there's a kind of willingness to be with the pain of that desire. We have to be willing to burn a little bit the struggle and the doubt and all of that. We have, to, we have to be okay with that. Wanting it so badly. 
It's called chanda in Pali. It's a wholesome kind of desire. And sometimes it's really painful. Some vega, the spiritual urgency we can get. And while it's uncomfortable, you don't need to get rid of it. Again, the British teacher, Rob Burbea, he says, it's like you're riding a strong horse. And you just have to get used to that strong horse. It will take you far. But you have to learn to be with the pain of that chanda, of wanting it so badly. Caroline, this summer, gave me this quote by Wendell Berry. She says, It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded stream is the one that sings. So the doubts, the hindrances, the dullness, the sleepiness, the fear, can these be onward leading? Can you let your desire and your metta, your trust in the goodness be bigger than any of that? Give the authority to the chitta. As I was gaining some momentum this summer, um, let's see, we had been in the cabin for maybe seven or eight months before we came here, and we took the train across the country. We didn't want to fly, so a four-day train trip, and I watched some movies, (laughs) which was a big indulgence because I hadn't been watching movies for seven or eight months. And The ones I watched were Encanto, and In the Heights, which are both Lin-Manuel Miranda films. I'm a big fan of Lin-Manuel Miranda, his lyrics, his music. And here, after having watched a couple of movies, I had so much uh, (laughs) reviewing of those scenes. I had the music playing in my mind and the scenes were so clear and I would sit in the hall and cry because the grandma forgave the Mirabelle. <laughs> I was just reliving those movies so starkly. And I had some metta, I had some samadhi and it was interesting when I didn't see it as a hindrance. When I just let myself replay all of those scenes and feel the metta that's there in those movies, the brilliancy of the story and the plot and the acting. It deepened my metta. It deepened my samadhi. There was image there. (laughs) There was some wording, some music. There was a felt sense. So I'm saying it's okay to go outside the box. We want you to do the phrases, but watch what really brings you into that deep sense of responsiveness, of joy, of connection. Let your heart be your guide. Maybe reviewing movie themes is okay if it deepens your practice. Let your emotions be big. Discover for yourself what leads you in.
So both metta and samadhi are about surrendering and letting the citta know what it knows how to do. Trust it. My friend and teacher, Devin Berry, says that love liberates. And what we're doing here is no small thing. We can trust this is a liberative practice. Angela Davis says, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world. And you have to do it all the time. So trust yourself and give the authority to your chitta. And you'll find your way. You can just sit quietly together before we chant. Thank you for your kind attention. And I know that it's the usual practice to chant the sharing of blessings, but we thought we would do the Karaniya Metta Sutta in English together to finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.